Hello, who am I? Who are we? For now, I don't think this matters. I exist now, for the time being, as a conduit, an antithetical conduit. I am reminded of a Zen poem. The years of a man's life spin like the spokes of a wheel. Beyond the cave of immortals, a world of perennial spring. Chin deep in urban dust, I leave no tracks behind. A totally graceless existence, a self completely unbared. So then, the question is, what shall we do in the meantime? We're taking so much information, what if something gets past us? Does this worry you? How do you know your signal-to-noise ratio is tuned right? Sometimes the answer has come to us, and it's passed us by. Mostly, most of us do not realize this. These narratives, they, uh, they taunt you. The answers are, in fact, right there all the time. My first ever very special guest, Harry Oldmeadow, scholar of the Sophia Perennis, or the traditionalist school of philosophy in the common parlance, author of over nine books, including my personal favorite, Black Elk, Lakota Visionary, and more articles that you can poke a stick at. I can assure you the juice is well worth the squeeze when it comes to Harry. Some of those well acquainted with the school may find some parts of this podcast introductory in nature, though as far as I'm concerned, it was all fascinating. Harry will be on soon to delve more deeply into certain matters. Harry's depth of understanding and breadth of knowledge means he can easily bring meta-concepts down to earth for us to understand. And in the end, isn't that really the whole point? I've split this up into two episodes, as I would want it. We spoke for two hours, but there's a lot to digest. In episode one, we talk on traditionalists, utopias, Tibet, saints and nihilism, what Harry says you should do, and much more. So it's with great pleasure and no further ado that I bring you episode one of the Ship of Fools podcast featuring Harry Oldmeadow. Thanks for coming on the show, Harry. It's, uh, it's great to finally have you. Well, it's very nice to be talking to you, Alex. So I've, I've already provided the, um, the uh, followers, I suppose, with a, a brief introduction of, of your work and, and the things that you've done. But I suppose a, a good place to start off would be to go through uh, your own background um, and how you came to the traditionalist school. And uh, I'm, I'm, in a way, I'm particularly interested to know how you did it, I suppose, in spite of the modern university system that would appear to be promoting all the opposite things. Uh, well, I don't know how much you want to know about my personal background, but I'll give you a very brief rundown. I spent my earliest years in India where my parents were Christian missionaries and I went to school in India until I was about 12 and then the family moved back to Australia and we lived in uh, various parts of New South Wales, mainly in country towns before eventually my parents moved to Canberra. I studied at the Australian National University and I, I did uh, mainly history there. I was doing a history honours degree and uh, studying some politics and literature as well. After leaving there, I did a dip ed in Sydney and uh, a school teacher, but that didn't last very long. I got a job at a 
University in Melbourne, Latrobe University, which was very new at that stage. Then I went off overseas to do some more study and uh, after a couple of years of study and travelling, I came back to Australia and so by now we're up to the early 1970s and this is when I first came into contact with the perennialist or traditionalist school. I remember it very clearly, my first uh, meeting, my first encounter. I was reading a newspaper and it was a weekly newspaper. I think it was called The Independent and I was reading a music review of a record by the Grateful Dead with whom I was uh, infatuated at that stage. My eye sort of wandered down the page and there was a book review under the music review and it was a, the book being reviewed was The Sword of Gnosis. It's an anthology of writings edited by Jacob Needleman. It appeared in the early 1970s, published by Penguin. And in that volume, there were essays by Gaynon, Shuan, Kumaraswamy, Martin Lings, Said Nasser, the whole, the whole, uh, the whole bunch of uh, traditionalist writers were represented. It's still a very fine anthology, still worth well worth reading. This anthology completely blew my mind. I was astonished by it. I, I was reading things and coming across a way of thinking which I hadn't encountered before. I was hugely impressed. I think this was about 1973 or no, 74 perhaps. So then I immediately went about acquiring books by most of the authors represented in the sort of Gnosis. And... Uh, Things moved on from there. So that's that's how I got started. Now, as to the other part of your question about how could this be, how could this happen when I was in a sort of academic environment? Well, I wasn't really in an academic environment actually at that stage because I'd, I'd stopped working in university and I, I was teaching in school and I was pretty caught up in the whole sort of countercultural movement of the time. So I was sort of... Um, already disenchanted with mainstream thinking, I suppose we could say, to oversimplify things. You know, I already had some interest in Eastern religion and philosophy and uh, various other non-mainstream ideas and ways of thinking, so it didn't come as a complete shock to me, but I must say it was it was like a, a bit of an earthquake coming across this book. And to just follow up also on the academia, you're quite right when you say that this way of thinking is alien to the prevailing view in academia and the prevailing view generally amongst the Western so-called intelligentsia. Uh, and this perspective has been more or less ignored in academia. You know, there have been a few engagements here and there, people within the academy have taken this philosophy, this outlook seriously, but they're very few and far between. Uh, one of them, one of the uh, one of the few examples of a person within academia who fully espoused the traditionalist point of view was James Cutsinger, mm. who actually died last week. Uh, mm. So we were very sad to hear of his passing. Absolutely, yeah. So that's um, that, that's a great summary. You, you kind of go through many philosophies, maybe some things that might touch on, you know, what would be considered traditionalist through various Eastern mysticisms and things like that. Um, and then uh, the people I know that have, that have come across it uh, tend to have this kind of moment where 
you have this rush of, of uh, truth, as you describe, you kind of have this awe-inspiring uh, uh. experience where you've, you've come across something that is, you know, in some sense true in the face of, um, I suppose, the veil of untruth that we kind of experience today. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. For me, it was, uh, it was it was like love at first sight, you know. It was, uh, mm, it was like yeah. I'd been struck by a, by a lightning bolt and things were never going to be the same from then on. You know, as you say, there there are some antecedents with things that were, you know, shared some ground with the traditionalist outlook, but it was a kind of turning point. Once I once once I'd immersed myself in this kind of writing and this kind of thinking, there was no there was no turning back, so to speak. Absolutely, you know, I think it's much the same for myself. Yeah, I don't view the the world in the same way anymore, and that includes intellectual things that I may, perhaps I used to be in. You, you are unable to view things, you know, as you once did. Do you think your formative experiences in India may have had um, some impact on on this? I think they must have. You know, when I came back from India, I was still quite young. I was 12 when we came back from India. But I, I retained a kind of interest in things Indian. And so even before I came across Gainon and company, uh, you know, I, I had a sort of serious interest in Indian philosophy and so on. Can I just go back for a moment to the impact of uh, the sort of gnosis? I've got a book here in front of me, and uh, I just want to read you what Saeed Hossein Nasser wrote about Gaynon's first book. He said it was like a sudden burst of lightning, an abrupt intrusion into the modern world of a body of knowledge and a perspective utterly alien to the prevalent climate and worldview and completely opposed to all that characterises the modern mentality. So that's, uh, that's pretty much how it was for me, yes. Yeah, it's much the same for myself. It's, it's an extremely powerful quote, that one. I've not, not heard that one before. Mm, mm. Um, so I guess um, from here, it's probably logical to um, maybe give the audience a view of, you know, a broad sense of what traditionalism is, what, what this school represents. Some people uh, in my audience are probably familiar with Gagnon and uh, perhaps Julius Evola, who's found a bit of a yes. resurgence uh, these days yes. uh, for various reasons. But um, even though I suppose the, some of the traditionalists, such as Gagnon, kind of rejected Evola in a way in many of his, his ideas, perhaps you could give the audience a kind of overview of what the Sophia Perennis is, okay. what it's trying to say. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a big call, a difficult task you've set me there, but I'll have yeah, a, yeah. Have a, I'll have a shot at it. Sure. Um, well, as as we just heard in that quote from Nasser, what we've got here is a total worldview, a kind of comprehensive view of everything, of reality with a capital R, if you like. It embraces a view of history, a view of time, a view of what the human being is, a view of of sort of different levels of reality and so on and so on. Now, to just focus on a few fundamental ideas which might help people to start thinking in the right sort of way about this school of thought. The first thing I would say is that what we have here is a an outlook which is informed by a quite different sense of time and history than the kind of modern worldview. What we have in the modern world is a kind of linear and progressive view of time whereby people assume or think that 
there is some sort of progress that humankind is developing, it's evolving, it's moving towards something better. The traditionalist outlook shares with the ancient Hindu outlook the idea that if we can talk in those terms at all, we should be talking in terms of degeneration, not progress, which is to say things are going downhill <laughs> rather than uphill, so to speak. Uh, now, this is, this is really important because the sort of historicist, progressivist, evolutionist view of things has completely tyrannised the Western mind, at least, for the last few hundred years. And it, it, it saturates into everything that we... All, all our ideas about almost everything are sort of permeated with this progressivist, evolutionist view. So that has to be, if not entirely dispensed with, put to one side if you're to begin to get a grip on the traditionalist outlook. Now, secondly, the traditionalists or perennialists believe that, to paraphrase the ancient Hindu scriptures, the material world emerges from a spiritual reality and everything in the material world, the whole world of time and space, emerges from, is created by, emanates from, use whatever terms you want, but the spiritual is primary. So that everything in the material world, everything in time and space has a kind of, uh, it has a spiritual origin. This means that human beings necessarily are spiritual beings, which is to say their, their material form, their material nature, which modern science is so obsessed with, is actually secondary. That's not the most important thing. So there's a spiritual realm, and that can be conceptualized in all sorts of different ways. And of course, all around the world, there are different terms, different symbols, different ways of trying to put this supreme reality into words and we might call it God or we might call it the Tao or we might call it Brahman, many different terms. But we're talking about one reality, one supreme, timeless, immutable reality. So, you know, for a Western audience, you know, some people will feel uncomfortable with the term God, but that's the term that we usually use in, in the Western tradition. Everything in the world of time and space, everything in the human world, everything in the social world, all of this is encompassed within a kind of larger spiritual frame. Houston Smith had a nice way of putting it, and I've seen others use the same Im image. They say that human life has got a vertical aspect and a horizontal aspect. The horizontal aspect is the material world and the world of time. It's the world of our egoic personalities. It's where the sort of human melodrama is played out from birth until death. But there's also a vertical dimension. We've got a connection. There's a connection between the spiritual reality and the material reality, between the divine realm and the human realm, between the celestial realm and the terrestrial realm. Now, the perennialists take the view that as do all traditional peoples, it might be said, that there is communication between God and man, between heaven and earth, between the spiritual and the material, between that which is timeless and immutable and unchanging and that which is subject to the vagaries and vicissitudes of time. 
Gainon established the kind of principle very early on that there was one source, many paths, one destination. Or to put it in another way, there is one divine source for all religious traditions, all revelations, all dispensations. Each religion is like the spoke of a wheel. The spokes converge on the centre. That's the point of origin. That's God. That's heaven. That's the supreme reality. As the spoke moves away towards the rim of the, of the wheel, the spokes get further and further apart so that the, the outer rim of the wheel is the kind of realm of exoteric religion. It's a formal, institutionalised religion with all of the scriptures and dogmas and rituals and buildings and all the rest. Sure. All the paraphernalia is situated on that outer ring. Mm-hmm. But the spokes are always connected to the centre and the centre represents the origin and, if you like, the destination of all these religions. It's the thing that holds everything together. With no centre, there's no wheel. Mm-hmm. The spoke could have no purpose if there wasn't a centre. The spiritual life is one of travelling down the spoke back towards the centre. And the further we travel back down that spoke, down that particular path, the spokes get closer and closer together. So when we arrive at the, at the centre, the differentiation of the spokes, the differences between the spokes are immaterial. We're at the same point. Another image that's often used is paths up the mountain. There are many ways to climb a mountain. So, you know, Christianity is one way, Hinduism's another way, Buddhism's another way, and so on. Each of these paths is appropriate for the people of a particular ethnic and historical and cultural disposition. And they take different paths up the mountain, but when they get to the top of the mountain, they don't have a fight about which path is best. They're all very happy to be on top of the mountain. They enjoy a 360-degree view, whereas the people climbing up the mountain, they've got a more limited viewpoint. They can only see things from their particular vantage point. They can't see the whole mountain. They don't have the view you get from the top. So this is a good image because the religions are paths and they're like paths up a mountain. Now, when when you're trying trying to climb a mountain, there's no point in walking 500 metres up one path and then going back down the bottom and walking up a couple of hundred metres on another path and then going back down the bottom Mm -hmm. and trying another path. The thing to do is choose a path and keep climbing until you get to the top. In other words... This is another very important principle in the traditionalist outlook. The quickest way to sort of signal it by a sort of shorthand is the word orthodoxy. Now, this is to say that each religious tradition is like a language, okay? And it's it's got its own rules. It's got its own principles of unity and homogeneity so that when we're speaking... English, we don't try to simultaneously speak French or Swahili or German. We speak one language because it makes sense. It all hangs together. Whereas if you start mixing languages, you start talking gibberish and people, you're quite unintelligible to other people. This is a very important point for people to understand because 
there have been quite a few people who have wanted to affirm some sort of perennial philosophy who would agree with the proposition that, you know, all the different religions point in the same direction, they all converge on a particular truth and so on. But the distinctive thing about the school with which we're concerned is that they insist on what we can call the claims of orthodoxy, which is to say, unlike people like, say, Aldous Huxley, who wrote the very famous and influential book, The Perennial Philosophy, what's being recommended here is not a kind of eclectic synthesis of different religions. You know, Huxley and some of these other people proposed a kind of super religion which would unify all of the different religions. Which in uh, itself, you'd, you'd have to say, would be a feature of modernity in a way, like a, a progressivist philosophy. Would that be yes. correct to say? Yes, yes. The yes. so trouble with a lot of those mm. people uh, was that although they claimed not to be, they were actually captive to various sort of modernist ideas. So these other, there's, uh, you know, Kumaraswamy, Gaynon Shuwan and, and so on, these people acknowledge the claims of religious doctrines and dogmas and rituals and so on, and they're not proposing some sort of eclectic mishmash or, or some kind of supra-religion which is like a, a kind of spiritual Esperanto or something. That's, that's not the way to go from the traditionalist point of view. The traditionalist sort of teaching is very simple. Choose an integral religious tradition, one of the great religious traditions, immerse yourself in it, follow the path recommended, laid down in that tradition. At the same time, you respect the validity, the integrity of all other, well, all orthodox religious traditions. That is to say, all religious traditions issuing from a divine revelation. Now, this is another important point for our listeners to understand. Uh, some, no doubt, will understand it perfectly well already, but uh, some won't. So under the, under the view espoused by Gainon, and the Quranic revelation, the advent of Islam, was the last great historical revelation. So there are, there are no comparable revelations post Muhammad, whatever year that was, late century. Genyon himself was uh, converted to Sufism, I believe. That's right. That's right, yeah. 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 That's an interesting feature of this movement that most of the people, not all of them, but most of them are Sufis. Most of the Western people like Shuon and Burkhart, Martin Lings, Westerners, Europeans who were brought up in a, in a Christian environment or what was left of a Christian environment, converted to Sufism, although Gaynon didn't like the term converted. He said he hadn't converted from anything to anything, but he, he was just on the Sufi path. But yes, most of these people have found in Sufism a kind of living mystical tradition, which is difficult to find in Christianity. I mean, in some senses, the esoteric, mystical tradition within any religion can't be entirely destroyed by its own nature. But in the Christian world, well, put it this way, the Christian world has suffered more under the ravages of 
modernity than the other traditions. You yourself, you're an Anglican, I believe. Is that correct? That's right. That's right, yes. And and what do you think? This is something I wanted to talk about. Um, Obviously, you mentioned progressivism earlier as quite a degenerating force. And presumably, the church has, has undergone a process uh, with progressivism that is that has led yeah. to uh, some unfavorable outcomes. Yeah. Uh, what what do you think has gone wrong with the church that say with Sufism or Islam is is still okay. relatively consistent? Okay, this is this is another very big question. Uh, first first of all, let me answer it in very big terms. Like the other traditionalists, I take the view that we are in the later stages of the Kali Yuga, that mm-hmm. is to say, the Iron Age. So. We're taking basically the traditional Hindu view that there are different ages and we move through these kind of cosmic cycles whereby things degenerate until they get to such a point that the world kind of collapses and then in some mysterious way starts all over again. So Gainon took the idea of the Kali Yuga uh, absolutely seriously and not just as a sort of, you know, poetic device or a metaphor. As far as he was concerned, this was a very real process taking place in time. Sure, he was quite literal, wasn't he? He His book, of course, The the Crisis of the Modern World, is is, um, exhaustive on this topic. Yes, and the reign of quantity also. So it's necessarily the case that throughout the world, not just in the West, but throughout the world, the effects of the Kali Yuga are being felt. Now, it's probably true to say that the West felt it first. Sure. Uh, But the rest of the world is by no means immune, and we can see this in the degenerations, the decadence, uh, that's afflicting pretty well all traditions now. And it's not without some irony, I suppose, that Islam is one of the worst affected, Uh, although Sufism as the sort of mystical core of Islam, uh, is still alive and vibrant. Uh, The exoteric or outer form of Islam is, like Christianity, in very serious trouble. Now, Gaynon said in The Reign of Quantity that there are two kind of fundamental trends which are to be seen everywhere, which manifest themselves in all sorts of ways. And he referred in detail in that book to what he called solidification and dissolution. We've got two things which in a sense are contradictory going on at the same time. So one is petrifaction, hardening, solidification, and the other is dissolution, dispersal, fluidity, okay? If we take the traditional religions, and we're talking about Christianity for the moment, in Christianity Mm -hmm. you can see very clearly I'm talking about the last 500 years, although the process has kind of accelerated in recent times and it's going helter-skelter now. That's for sure. If you look look at Christianity, you can see the hardening in a kind of dogmatism, a kind of formalism, and in, in its most extreme forms in fundamentalism, evangelical fundamentalism and so on. So this is... This is where kind of Christian ideas, Christian principles, values and so on have rigidified and they've, they've kind of fossilised and the mystical and spiritual kind of lifeblood is gone. You're left with these hardened 
forms, solidified forms as going on the table. At the other extreme, we get dissolution. Now, this is probably what you're referring to in your question. Dissolution is the sort of forces of, you know, to want of a better word, we can call liberalism, a kind of laissez-faire, progressivist, individualist kind of outlook has taken over these religious forms and it hasn't dispensed with them, hasn't thrown them in the bin, but it's it's softened them to the point where they become more or less meaningless. Anglicanism has been, like like most of the Christian branches of Christianity, has been affected by both of these processes of, of solidification and dissolution so that, you know, the formal exoteric forms of religion are everywhere in trouble. They're everywhere in varying stages of disarray. Now, there's something important to understand here because when people look at this kind of situation and understand the sorts of things we're talking about here, they often say things like, oh, well, Christianity or religion X or Y, uh, Christianity's bankrupt. It's moribund. It's, it's exhausted. It's finished. It's, it, it's no longer relevant. Um, we have to start again. What uh, Shuon in particular insists on is that a religion can't, in its essence, be bankrupt. If a religion derives from a divine revelation, then that revelation can't be affected by the passage of time and it can't become more or less relevant. It's what it always was. To use that kind of more or less meaningless phrase that people use all the time these days, it is what it is. Divine revelation is a divine revelation. And if that's the case, then the teachings of that tradition and the forms, the rituals, the dogmas, the scriptures, the symbols, all of that, uh, they can't become obsolete. Uh, it's, it's we, we human individuals and human society that's become bankrupt, not the, not the religious tradition. So uh, when, we, when we talk about this or that religion being out of date, irrelevant, moribund, obsolete, anachronistic, and all the rest of it. We should be talking about ourselves, not the not the religious tradition. Anyway, sure. that's a long and rambling answer to your question. There's a tendency, particularly in young people, to become, I'd say, rather nihilistic. What we call amongst the youth "black pilled," which is which is to say that everything is hopeless. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. we're in the Kali Yuga. There is no chance. How do I? How do I have a relationship with the, you know, the eternal principle, for lack of a better word? I often say that because it is eternal, it simply cannot be destroyed despite yeah. the ravages of the, you know, yeah. the forces in the Kali Yuga. And this is something that people often don't understand. You know, it's, it's, it's not, it, it cannot be destroyed. As, as Sean says repeatedly, the truth is inviolate. It can't be desecrated. We can desecrate ourselves by distorting it, abusing it, ignoring it, running away from it. Uh, but the truth itself is inviolate. It's it's like all things sacred. It's inviolate. It's indestructible. Interestingly, um, you know, these days you have this this kind of Nietzschean nihilism, which yeah. is another feature that you know yeah. young people succumb to. And I often thought that this might be as a result of the drive towards some sort of scientific reductionism yeah. into material, and that that probably leads into what you were saying about um, the stultification or the solidification. Of, yeah. um, of the world in general. How do you see the impact of material reductionism on, on people and this, this kind of prevailing nihilism that everyone's depressed despite this, you know, yeah. amazing material inheritance yeah. that they yeah. have? 
There's something missing for us, do you think? Yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Nietzsche. I I might have something to say about him in a moment. But to just Mm. answer your more immediate question, obviously this is a very deep question with all sorts of ramifications and we could talk about it for hours, but to just give you my simple answer, my diagnosis, so to speak, of the modern situation and the sort of alienation and ennui and nihilism that you're talking about has got one very simple cause, and that is lack of meaning. People need meaning in their lives. They, they, need, they need some purpose. They need some centre. They need some sort of orientation. Now, the modern world has filled people with all sorts of absurd ideas about what life is, why we're here, what the nature of the human being is, what our destiny is and all of that. And we've been told all of these preposterous and absurd things that, you know, if not directly and indirectly and by all sorts of subtle and pervasive means, we're told that, you know, life is about wealth or life is about power or life is about status or life is about comfort uh, or whatever. Well, of course, life is not about those things. The modern view has no room for the spiritual, that vertical dimension that I was talking about before. It's been cut off. It's as if you've got, you know, if you take the image of the cross, the vertical pole's been taken away, so all that we're left is the horizontal pole and that can't even stay in place. It just falls flat on the ground. As I'm sure you're well aware, Alex, the countries in which the suicide rates are highest are precisely the countries in which the material standard of living is highest, which rather proves my point. Absolutely. That that in those countries where people have got very little reason to complain about their material circumstances, they've got money, they've got a place to live, they've got food, shelter, and so on and so on, it's in those places that suicide rates are completely out of hand. So there must be an obvious lesson in all of that. Gaynon says something very interesting and very important in the reign of quantity, and I dare say he says it in a lot of other places as well. He says that the essential, the essential spirit of modernity and of modernism, that is to say a, a whole raft of interrelated ideas about time and human life and so on and so forth, ideas which are, you know, liberal, progressivist, post-enlightenment, rationalistic, humanistic, scientific, and so on and so on. That whole, that whole uh, constellation of ideas is essentially a negation of traditional ideas. It's essentially negative. It's, it's essentially destructive. Now, of course, this is not how people think about modern ideas. They think about these ideas as progressive. That is to say, they're the best ideas available. We've replaced the old ideas, which are superstitious, hocus-pocus, mumbo-jumbo. We've replaced those ideas with rationality, science, education, progress, and all the rest of it. Uh, But Kainan says, no, no, that's not really what's happening. What's really happening is that traditional understandings of the world being turned upside down or inside out or rejected altogether. So he says a lot of a lot of modern ideas are a kind of parody, a caricature of traditional ideas. 
And that's a that's a kind of difficult notion to get your head around. But once you see it, once you understand what Gaynon's talking about, you then you then understand that all of the ideologies and philosophies of modernity, whether we're talking about, you know, Nietzschean existentialism or Freudian psychoanalysis or Marxist materialism or whatever, all of these ideas appear to be radically different from each other and they all appear to be competing for our attention and our commitment and our loyalty, but they're actually all the same, essentially. They're essentially all the same because they all reject the spiritual dimension, they all reject traditional thinking, and they are all based on the premise that the human being is a social and biological a social being and a biological organism, and that is all. What these apparently divergent modern philosophies and ideologies have in common is actually much more important than their differences. If you, if you want one word to sum up the whole modern outlook, it would be materialistic in its, in its sort of broadest philosophical sense. And so I think a lot of the nihilism, as you, as you refer to it, and the despair and the confusion and the lack of direction and purpose that so many young people, and of course not just young people, but many people, but particularly young people, that all derives from not having any kind of, as I said earlier, not having any kind of sense of centre, of, of purpose, of orientation, of something higher, of something beyond themselves, of something something that's worth striving for. I mean, if if life really and truly is what... We're told it is through the advertisements and the press and the media and the Facebook and all the rest of it. I mean, if, if that view of life is correct, if that's authentic, if that's how things really are, well, of course you'd despair. Of course, of course you'd be, you know, upset and, and lost and confused and bitter and angry when there's nothing better on offer. That's, that's, that's the result. In this kind of situation, all we can do is say, well, you know, Here's another way of looking at it. You know, here's here's a here's a different perspective. Here's a different here's a different way of thinking, of feeling, of being, of living. And from our point of view, from my point of view, it's infinitely preferable to what's on offer in the modern world. But of course, this is a pretty big step. And also, people have to have the resources and the wherewithal to to understand these things. So, in an ideal world, there'd be people like you and me all over the place in schools and universities and writing in newspapers and all of that. But of course, we're in a tiny minority and we're we're swimming against the tide. So uh, it's very difficult in this sort of. I'm just so grateful. I feel so blessed and so lucky and uh, to have come across the traditionalist way of thinking. Because you know, like many other people, I could easily have gone through life and never. Never bumped into it, never heard of these people, never read these marvellous, luminous, radiant uh, writings of, of Gaynon and Sean and these various other people. So so ever since I've encountered this, I keep calling it a school of thought. Of course, it's not, that's far too limiting, but for want of a better term, I'll, I'll call it a school, this school or this perspective. Ever since then, I've, I've committed myself to making these ideas and values and outlooks as, as widely known as possible. I, I've always been extremely uh, sceptical of utopias and the yeah. idea of utopianism. And yeah. I find that in modernism, there's a kind of 
progression towards this utopia where everyone is going to be happy. They'll have everything that they need and want. Ironically, it's such a, a destructive idea because you have things like the destruction of native cultures, their outlook, their way that they navigate the world completely destroyed in the name of this kind of progressivist idea and materialism. I think it's one of the greatest crimes there is, frankly. And it's, and it's all, all a result of, of modernity and this kind of utopia it pushes. Yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Alex. That whole utopian thing has got quite a long history, but it really, it really came into its own in the 18th century with um, the Enlightenment thinkers. That's a horrible term, the Enlightenment. They weren't enlightened at all, but uh, that's the term that's been used historically. But, uh, you know, what we had there was ideas about the perfectibility of man and the perfectibility of, of society. You know, all we had to do was go about things in a rational way and use science and education and we could fix everything. And that that kind of utopianism is and, you know, I mean, the evidence to the contrary is so overwhelming, you would have thought that the whole idea of utopianism would have died a natural death a long time ago. We've got the whole of the 20th century to show us that this idea is ludicrous, the 20th century being the most bloodstained, the most hideous and destructive and violent century in human history. Anyway, leaving that aside, this utopianism is particularly sinister because people who are persuaded that this or that is possible by way of, you know, a perfect society, a fair, equitable, just society and so on, once that idea is lodged in their minds, they're confronted with something completely different, which is a society which is manifestly unequal, unfair and so on, and they get resentful. They get, uh, they get resentful and angry. And, of course, this has reached an absolute peak in the last... 10 or 15 years, particularly through the internet, where everybody is outraged and angry about everything. And that's partly, that's again a very complicated question, but it's partly because they've been infected with this kind of idea that perfection is possible in this life, in this world. Well, all the traditional teachings tell us otherwise, without exception. They all tell us otherwise. We're living in a very imperfect world. You know, in Christianity, this is... Uh, symbolised through the doctrine of original sin and the story of Adam and Eve and so on, but there are an analogous kind of doctrines in all the traditions. Living, We're living in an imperfect world and the human being is an imperfect being and it can only really be redeemed through grace and through divine power. All these ideas about perfect societies and so on are Promethean. They're, they're kind of rebellion against heaven. Now, of course, that's not to say that, you know, we shouldn't work towards improving this or this, that aspect of society and we shouldn't work towards getting rid of this or that abuse. But that's quite a different thing from imagining that we are inexorably moving and progressing towards some kind of future utopia. So, yeah, I completely agree with you. Utopianism, it's a, it's a pernicious it seems like a good idea, uh, you know, it's, it seems to be a positive idea and People get a bit of an uplift from thinking that, you know, maybe we can make things in this way. But uh, really, in the end, it's a very sinister idea because if you persuade people that a perfect society is possible, well, then any means to achieve it becomes permissible. Now, I'm reminded of Trotsky. 
who was asked in 1921 or 1922 what he thought about the fact that six million, six million people had died in the Russian Civil War, let alone all the millions that died in the years immediately preceding. But mm-hmm. what did he think about the fact that six million people had died in the Civil War? And he answered, and he was absolutely serious, he answered, it's a small price to pay for the revolution. If you believe that the revolution could actually achieve its ends and create a perfect society, well, you might say there's some sort of logic in Trotsky's answer. Mm-hmm. But of course, we know that the revolution didn't produce a perfect society. It produced abuses which were even worse than the abuses that it was trying to solve. And those six million people really died for no very good reason. So you see what I'm saying. I mean, that's just an example. But I'm, 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 I'm saying that if you persuade people that they can achieve a perfect society, well, then everything becomes permissible. And you referred before to the destruction of the Indigenous cultures, perfect example. People think they're establishing a superior civilization. They think they think that the American Indians or the Australian Aborigines. They think people are savages. They're they're primitives. They're they've been left behind. We're going to bring them into the modern world, and we're going to give them all the benefits of the modern world, and we're going to help them to progress towards a better civilization. Well, we know the result. You know. Mm. Bloodshed and slaughter and vandalism and destruction on a huge scale, and I, I agree with you. The, the the destruction of the traditional cultures, and of course in Australia we've got nothing to be proud of on this front. The destruction of traditional cultures is one of the great vandalisms of modern times. You know, the last probably the last great intact tradition, that is to say, a tradition more or less uncontaminated by modernity was Buddhist Tibet, and we know what's happened to that. Yeah, I myself have actually traveled to Tibet. It's interesting because I I, I wasn't a a traditionalist at the time, but there was obviously something about it that was um, interesting to me, and I I became quite obsessed with it. And I actually read one of your papers online about Tibet and about all the influences Tibet had had on on various Western thinkers. And there was was one uh, quote in there by a guy called... uh, Marco Pallas, who I'd not yep. really heard of before. Yes, yes. And it, it was interesting because it it kind of um, shed some light, I suppose, on on why I found it to be interesting, even though at the time I, I probably didn't have any awareness of why I was kind of interested in it. I'll just quote him for a moment, if I, if I may. Sheltered behind the rampart of the Himalaya, Tibet yep. has looked on almost unscathed, while some of the greatest religious traditions of the world have reeled under the attacks of all-devouring monster of modernism. The significance of Tibet is to be found in the word traditional, which is to say that the separation between religion and culture is non-existent, the whole yep. social order being shaped and governed by the distinctive form of Buddhism, which has developed over centuries and which has kept alive a sense of the sacred in every aspect of Tibetan life. I suppose it was, it was my own experience of my own culture and the, the collapse of these, these traditional outlooks, you know, this kind of meaninglessness that had attracted me to Tibet. Unfortunately, when I arrived, I saw something entirely different. And that kind of ties in with, you know, the Marxist uh, utopianism that the, the Chinese government has, has imposed. It was quite a, a depressing experience. And yet I could see the vestiges of what Palace is describing here. It was yes, um, yes. tragic, really. It's a very good example you bring up there and a very good illustration because, you see, from the modern point of view, traditional Tibet up until the 70s, 
Chinese invasion in 1958 or 59. Looking at that society, you'd say, well, it was backward. It was very undeveloped, you know, had very low literacy rates, had low standard of living, not as high life expectancy as developed countries and so on. Of course, it's the view the Chinese take. And I, I remember watching a Chinese propaganda film, must have been about 1970 or early 70s when they'd been there for 10 or 15 years. And the the, the gist of this film was when we arrived in Tibet, there were no, let me see, I can remember specific examples they gave. There were no tractors in Tibet when we arrived. Now there are 85,000 tractors in Tibet. When we arrived in Tibet, there were no cement factories. Now there are 17,000 cement factories. When we arrived in Tibet, there were no airfields and so on and so on. So a totally material kind of viewpoint and religion, as we know, from the Chinese viewpoint, it's just superstition. And they've ravaged the monasteries, they've dismantled the whole sort of edifice of Tibetan Buddhism. When I was there, they, they'd actually destroyed, I think, about 2,000 or more monasteries. This yeah. is the, the official count. It's probably yeah. a lot more yeah. than that. It's a very clear example of what's happened all over the world to traditional cultures. This kind of juggernaut of modernity has just ridden roughshod over these cultures. And it's all... It's all in the name of progress. It's all in the name of moving towards something better. But what's being destroyed is infinitely more precious and irreplaceable. As Pallas says, the, the Tibetan tradition was something unique, uh, something that can't be replaced, was something very precious. Uh, T.S. Eliot once said an interesting thing. He said, uh, he said, rather than judging a society by the material standard of living, as we do in modern times, we should be judging it by how many saints it produces. Tibet produced an extraordinary number of very, very profound sages and saints in its latter years, in the in the in the middle of the twentieth century. Thomas Merton talks about some of these people in in his book Asian Journal where he went to the Himalayas and met a lot of these characters who by this stage were in exile from Tibet. So on, on Eliot's criteria of how many saints and sages the society is producing, I can assure you that Tibet was a very long way ahead of pretty well every other country in the world. <laughs> 